Let's talk about the presence of God. We're going to read three passages of Scripture, first from the Psalms, one from 1 Peter, and then from the Gospel of John. And I want to talk about the presence of God this morning. Before we read the Scriptures, let me, let me say this. We talk often, we sing often, we preach often about the presence of God. And I think we may have become too comfortable. We say it too easily, without thinking. As, as Christians, we're bound not only to be with God, but also to speak of God. Not only to know God, but to make God known. And because we have those two responsibilities, not only to live with God, to pray and to sing and to bathe in his presence and to joy in him, but also to tell others about him in ways that are faithful, because we have both of those responsibilities, sometimes we have to step back from the moment and reflect on what we're doing and ask ourselves, is this faithful? Are we speaking truthfully about God? Are our practices really reflecting what God calls us to be and to do? And this morning, I want us to be in that kind of space where we step back and ask, Lord, help us discern whether or not we're speaking rightly about you, whether or not what we say is in fact the best thing to say about what it is for you to be present. And in that way, I'm going to try to trouble some of our habits of speech, try to problematize it a bit so that we can see it from a different angle. Well, let's begin with these scriptures. Psalm 16, verse 11 says that in God's presence is fullness of joy. In your presence there is fullness of joy. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9 says something quite different. And when you set the two scriptures beside each other, you start to see that difference. Peter says, he's writing to exiles, he says, aliens who've been scattered all over the world, people without a home country because they belong to the kingdom. He says to them, although you have not seen him, you love him. So he immediately acknowledges, you don't have this relation to his presence that the disciples did before his ascension. You have not seen him. We saw him. We were there at the moment of transfiguration. We were there when they crucified him. We were there when the tomb was empty and he claimed to have been resurrected. But you weren't there, and yet you love him. You love him. And then he says it again, as if they'd missed the point. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. So notice how these two passages of Scripture complement one another. The psalm says, in his presence there is joy. Peter says, even when he's not present in that way, you have indescribable joy. Think about that. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Even though you do not see him, you have unspeakable joy, joy that's full of glory. And then the story of Thomas also speaks to this issue of how God is present to us and how we are to be present to God. John 20 opens with Jesus' appearance to Mary Magdalene. She comes to the tomb. She finds the tomb empty. She's broken because she thinks someone's taken the body of Jesus. She goes and finds the beloved disciple and Peter. They come and see the empty tomb, and they return. She remains at the tomb weeping, and angels appear to her and ask her why she's weeping. She says, I want to know where they've taken the body of my Lord. And then Jesus appears to her. She thinks he's the gardener, remember? And then he calls her name, and she recognizes him. And then after his appearance to Mary Magdalene, Jesus appears to all the disciples except Thomas, who for some reason isn't there. He was homesick. He was watching some sporting event on TV. He's not there for whatever reason, right? It was raining that day, and he didn't want to get out, right? 
whatever the case was, he's not there, right? And Jesus appears to all of them. And then the disciples, and we're going to pick up the text in just a moment, the disciples are telling Thomas about that, about their having seen the Lord. And this is what we're told. Verse 24. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Now this is the story we all know as the story of doubting Thomas. Do you know how unfaithful it is to describe him as doubting Thomas? This is a moment in this man's life. One moment in which he's hearing from people that they've seen this, this Lord No one believed resurrection. No one was expecting resurrection. No one knew what to make of claims of resurrection. Dead people don't come to life, especially not in this way. And yet we call him Doubting Thomas. Did you know earlier in the Gospel of John, when Jesus says he's going to see Lazarus, even though there are enemies there waiting for him, Thomas says, let us go with him, even if we die. And history records that Thomas does, in fact, die in his witness for the Lord. He's a a martyr in bearing the gospel. And yet we call him not the martyr Thomas, not Saint Thomas, but doubting Thomas. How foolish of us to think we can define someone by that kind of moment. Thank God we're not defined that way by God, that he doesn't define us by some moment in which we're unsure of what to make of what God is doing. So Thomas says, unless I touch him, I won't believe. And notice, Jesus appears for Thomas. Jesus comes into the room a week later. They're in the room. The doors are shut. Jesus comes and stands among them. Peace be with you. And then immediately says to Thomas, put your finger here. And what I love about this is it shows that Jesus heard Thomas. When Thomas was telling the disciples, I won't believe, what Jesus heard was, he will believe if I'm present. The ways in which we're speaking that sounds like lack of faith, I wonder how God hears it. We hear someone talking and it sounds to us like doubt, but I wonder how God hears their doubt. I wonder what he hears at the bottom of their doubt. So he appears and he says to Thomas, touch me. Here's my wound. Put your hand in my wound. Here are my pierced hands. And Thomas falls to his knees and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. All of these scriptures about presence. I think part of our problem, I think we have habits of speech in which we we talk about presence and we really don't know what we mean. You remember that scene in The Princess Bride where he says, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. And sometimes I hear people preaching or I hear songs we're singing. I hear myself talking and I, I want to say, I don't think that means what you think it means. And there are three ways, three habits of speech that I keep hearing over and over again. I hear myself saying them. I hear people around me saying them. We sing them. And I've, I've come to the place where I'm just, I'm uncomfortable with it. Because something about it doesn't seem right to me. And here's, here's the first one. We talk of God's presence as if it's something that comes and goes. Depending on how intense we are about wanting it. That God's presence is something that I make happen, that I trigger by wanting it desperately enough, by pursuing him intensely enough. 
Now, there's a reason we talk in that way. Scripture talks in this way sometimes. I think what Jeremiah says, God speaking through the prophet, you will seek for me, you will seek for me, and you will find me when you seek for me with all of your heart. The Psalms speak again and again of longing for God. We long for God like a dry land, a parched land, longs for rain. We long for God like the deer, longs for the brook. There's, there's a place, a time, a way to talk about seeking God, about pursuing God's presence. But when we talk about it and we've forgotten the fundamental truth that contextualizes it, it becomes unfaithful. And the fundamental truth that contextualizes talk about pursuing God is the truth that God is already finding us. I can only seek him because I'm already found. I can only go and look for him because he's already holding me near. He is nearer to me than I am to myself. And because he holds me in being, it's even possible for me to seek after him. I can only call on him because he's already calling on me. You remember what Paul says on Mars Hill when he sees the altar to the unknown God? He says, I know this God. You can't name him. I can name him. I know his character. I've seen his face. This is the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And he is not far from any of us. You may not know his name. You may not recognize his character. You may not be seeking him, but he's holding you in being. He's nearer to you than you are to yourself. As St. Augustine says, when he's reflecting on his life of unbelief, before he's been baptized, before he's come to know the Lord, he says, you were within me, but I was looking for you without. You were with me, but I was not with you because I was distracted by created things. The fundamental truth of your existence and my existence is that we live in the embrace of God. And if we never recognize it, it doesn't change the fact that we live because he lives through us. He gives us our being. He gives us our breath. He gives us life. I seek him because he's already found me. So let's make sure when we talk about wanting God's presence and pursuing God's presence and desiring God's presence, that we understand that that arises out of a God who is already present to us. He's already here, already holding us. We don't have to ask him to come and meet us. In these spaces on Sundays when we gather, he's the host. We're the guests. You know, traditionally, we refer to this as the Lord's house. And in some ways, of course, that can become unfaithful. We want to think about this as the only place God is located, as if he's some kind of shut-in, right? And when we're out there in the world, God is inaccessible and we come here to find him. That's untrue. But it is God's house in the sense that he's here inviting us. We don't come here in hopes that God shows up. He's here hoping we show up. He's at our bedside hoping we come out of the coma and realize he's been holding our hand all along. As they say in, in old Pentecostal churches, I'm preaching better than you're shouting. Right? Maybe I need to grab the cordless mic, right? Someone get on the keyboard. This is good news. Yeah, I get my hanky out. Right, exactly. That's the next stage. Right, this is working better and better. Maybe I'll have to bring the stick next, uh, next time. So that's one way. A second way that we talk that I think we need to trouble, we need to step back from, is we talk about desiring God as if our desires are already pure. As if wanting God is in and of itself a good thing. But you know, our desires for God can be as perverse as our desires for anything else. We can want to use God. 
Walter Brueggemann has this wonderful reading of the Ten Commandments in which he says the first three of the Ten Commandments can be summarized in this way. I'm not useful. It's God saying, I'm not like those other gods. Idols are gods you make in your own image to accomplish your own ends. You want to win war, you create a god of war. You need to have a child, you make a fertility goddess. You need to have crops, you pray to the god of rain. But I'm not a god like that. I'm not useful in that way. You didn't make me in your image. I made you in my image. And part of what we have to realize is that our desires for God spring up both from our created nature and from the sin that has corrupted our created nature. So that God is always going to be to us both strange and familiar, attractive and repellent. The psalmist says, there's one thing I have desired, to dwell in the house of the Lord and to see his beauty. And yet Isaiah says that when God comes among us in Jesus Christ, he has no beauty that we should desire him. And this is what it means to be human, whether you're a believer or not a believer. It means that when the beauty of God enters your life, you're both attracted to it and repelled by it. Something about it entices you and you want it, but then you put your hands on it the wrong way. We're like the rich young ruler who wants eternal life until Jesus says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then we'll have that conversation. And all of the beauty that was drawing him to Jesus suddenly disappears. Jesus is beautiful until you hear him say, love your enemy, do good to the people that are abusing you, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. And so there's this way in which Jesus draws us and at the same time repels us. And that's why we have to be careful about even our desires for God. What am I desiring when I desire you? God, are my desires godly? Or am I trying to use you, trying to make you useful for me? Am I trying to find a way to bring God on my side? You remember the story, Joshua's entering into Canaan. He's standing outside, looking at the walls of Jericho, and suddenly this man of war appears to him in full armor, an angel of the Lord. And Joshua draws his sword and says, whose side are you on? And the angel responds and says, I'm the angel of the Lord. I'm not on anyone's side. I'm not here to win your battles for you. I'm not useful in that way. And so part of our prayer has to be, God, I want to desire you, but I need you also to change my desires so that my desires become faithful. Because my heart is desperately wicked. And I can't always tell when I'm desiring rightly and when I'm desiring wrongly. So I offer up my desires as a sacrifice. Consume what needs to be consumed. Separate the silver from the dross. Make my desires holy. So that when I want you, I want you. I want you, whatever that means. And that's, that's the process of being sanctified. A third way in which we speak about God's presence that I think we have to trouble a bit is we talk about God's presence as if it's something simply to be enjoyed. As if it's just merely delightful. Now, I want, I want to be careful here because there's a way in which that's true. There is something joyful about being in the presence of God. We should take joy in that. And I think ultimately we are made for that. We are made to be in the presence of God and to enjoy being with God. In fact, I think whatever we mean by heaven... Heaven is that. It is being with God and with one another in a way that is just delightful. Delighting in who we are and who God is and who we are with God. 
but we're not in heaven yet. Heaven hasn't come yet. The world is not all right yet. Sanctification is not accomplished yet. And that means that when God is present to us now, he's present as a consuming fire. He's present to us in such a way that changes us, that threatens our way of life, that causes us to be disoriented in ways that attract us and repel us. And so when we talk about God's presence, we have to recognize that we're being invited into holy space into holy time, and that we don't know what might happen when we come into his presence. We don't know what kind of light is going to be shed on the sins that are deeply rooted in us. We don't know what God is going to expose about our illusions and delusions, about our fantasies, about our desires for this kind of life when God means something else for us. To be in his presence is to be threatened, threatened by goodness, threatened by by sanctity and holiness, but threatened nonetheless. To come into his presence is to run the risk of being undone. And so if we only talk about God's presence as delightful, we're missing the call to holiness, the call to be made like him. Because here's, here's where I think we go wrong. We act as if the whole point is to be with Jesus. We're not called to be just with Jesus. We're called to be with him in such a way that we become like him. There were many people who were with Jesus who had no interest in being like him. They were with him as long as he was performing miracles and feeding them miraculously. But the moment he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me, they're done. Because they don't want to be like him. They just want to be with him. And this is what separates, as we say, the men from the boys, the disciples from the admirers. If we really want to be with him the way he calls us to be with him, then we want to be with him enough to become like him. And that means he must act on us in ways that threaten our very being. He is a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. I love this image. I heard a wonderful sermon once using this image that sometimes God is with us in this aggressive, frightening way, like a fire that refines the silver or the gold, like the fire that burns through the forest. And other times he's with us gently as a, as a soap. But regardless, to be in God's presence now means change is going to come. Your life cannot remain the same, not if you're truly present with him. And our speech has to reflect that. So now I'm going to actually get to something that's probably worthwhile. I'm going to steal from two other sermons, right? So I thought if I couldn't put together a sermon that would work, I would steal others and piece them in, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal first from a sermon by a Pentecostal bishop. This sermon was preached about 1910 or 1911. So right in the heat of the moment of the Azusa Street Revival that's spreading around the world. J.H. King was his name, and he preaches this sermon drawing from the story of Isaac and Ishmael. You remember the story, Abraham's two sons. And he uses that, their story as a kind of typology. And he argues that, that Ishmael represents all the things that are born of our own strength, all the things that are born of flesh. And Isaac represents the gift of God, the ways in which God works in us and gives us spirit and life. And he says that sanctification works in kind of at two stages. The first stage is God saves us from what is wrong. He saves us from our loving the wrong things. He saves us from Ishmael. But that sanctification really begins... It becomes serious, not when we're being delivered from the wrong things, you know, like R-rated movies and cussing, right? But, sorry. 
Not when we're being saved from the wrong things. And makeup, right, right, exactly. Don't get me sidetracked. Right? Not when God is saving us from the wrong things, but when he saves us from loving the right things the wrong way. That that's where the rubber meets the road, as we say. Because it's one thing to recognize this is wrong and I need to give it up because it's destroying my life. It's another thing to say, but you gave me, Isaac. This is from you. And then he makes this application. Again, Pentecostal bishop in the heat of the moment of revival. He says, what God will ask us to give up is the feelings of delight we have in his presence. That's Isaac. Let me read to you a bit of what he said. We shall be crucified in our emotions. There are times when God plays upon our emotions and it is delightful for everything God does is delightful. And we shall be lifted into the ecstasies of joy, into the peace of heaven. And we feel this is essential to our living acceptably before God and overcoming the enemy and all of his attacks upon us. But, he says, we shall come to the point, if we continue to be with the Lord, we shall come to the point where God will lead us away from these ecstasies where he will wholly crucify them so that we do not depend upon them as an evidence of salvation or acceptance with God, and then we may sink deeper into him. Think about that. What he's saying is there's a kind of delight, a sweetness, a consolation that comes in God's presence. But if you want to be like him, You have to be willing to say, take even this sweetness, this delight, this joy for me so that I know I love you and not the consolation and the sweetness and the delight. I wonder how many of us think we love God when really what we love is how we feel when we're loving God. We think we want to worship, but what we really love is how we feel while we're worshiping. And that's not the same. And even though there's nothing wrong with feeling delight while worshiping or enjoying being in the presence of God, if we're going to be like him, we have to move beyond simply feeling a certain way in his presence. We have to become so intimately connected to him that we're past wanting to feel a certain way and we just want to be with him and be like him. I'll never forget this moment. It doesn't always happen in preaching. It's probably not happening for you. But this moment in which in the the middle of a sermon... A truth hit me that, that still shakes me. It had been a series of sermons about the life of David. And this was the final sermon in the series. And he was talking about David's final words. And the whole series had been about David, the man after God's own heart. David, the worshiper. David, the man who says, I long for you. I want to be in your presence. But when we come to the end of David's story, David's last words run like this. He says to Solomon, above all, fear the Lord. And by the way, there are four people who wronged me. And I vowed not to avenge myself on those four people. But you didn't make a vow. So when I die, you bring all four of them down to their graves with blood. And while that text was being read, I realized something. That being a worshiper doesn't necessarily shape your character. David wrote the Psalms. David lived a life of prayer and praise. 
But when he died, what came up out of his heart was bitterness and anger and unforgiveness and revenge. Now think about how different that is from Stephen, the first martyr, who while he is being spit upon and bitten and cursed and stoned, looks to heaven and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The exact words of Jesus when he's being killed. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And in that moment, I said a prayer that I keep saying over and over again. God, don't let me be like David. Don't let me be a worshiper who never lets you come and change my character. Don't let me sing songs and preach sermons and give lectures and have conversations in which I sound like the man who wants God, but I never let you get at me in such a way that I become like you. I want to die like Stephen died. I want to die in a way in which what comes off of my lips is grace and peace and life and joy and forgiveness. And the only way I can die with that kind of grace is if I let his grace invade my life in such a way that it reorders me from the depths out. And I can't do that just by praising and preaching and singing. I have to be available to God in a radical way that lets him be that refining fire and that fuller soap. And so another sermon, also stolen. This one from a medieval mystic who was later condemned as a heretic. Right? Probably not the sermon you want to draw from, but this, it's, it's too good not to draw from. Meister Eckhart Luther drew from him, so if Luther can, surely I can. It's, he was famous, renowned in his own day as a preacher. And this is perhaps his most famous message, a sermon about Mary and Martha. We know the story. Jesus comes to Lazarus' house and the sister's house. And Martha's busy in the kitchen. I don't know what Lazarus is doing. Probably telling Martha what to prepare, right? Sorry, that was supposed to be funny. Was that, didn't mean to <laughs> offend anyone. I don't think that was appropriate, right? He was in the kitchen helping Martha. Let's just go with that. Right? So Lazarus and Martha are in the kitchen. And Mary is at Jesus' feet. Right? She's desiring to be taught by the Lord. And all of the sermons we hear now, as all of the sermons worked in Eckhart's day, are about how Mary is the mature one. She's the one who gets it. She just wants to be with Jesus. Martha's busy with many things, but Mary, she wants to be with the Lord. How many sermons have we heard about how Mary is the one who understands? But Eckhart said, actually, Martha's the mature one. Because Mary wants to take. Martha wants to give. And he says that Martha has already had her moment at the feet of Jesus. That's how she knows to serve. But Mary hasn't come to that place of maturity yet. She still needs and Martha's worried about Mary. She's worried that Mary's going to be fixed in that moment of needing, of taking. And she wants her to move past it. And so Jesus says to her, oh, Martha, don't worry. Eckhart actually says, cheer up, Martha. She will move past this. And then Eckhart ends his sermon this way. Mary sat at his feet and learned. And when she learned then she really for the first time began to serve. Thus do the saints become saints. Not until then, not until they get up and go into the kitchen and start to serve, do they begin to practice virtue. 
What Eckhart is pointing us to is that Mary, as, as disorienting as that may seem, as upside down as it may seem, what Eckhart is pointing us to is that Mary is still wanting to receive from the presence. Martha is ready to be the presence. She's ready to bear the presence into the world. Is there a time to be like Mary? Absolutely. But what I worry about is that our spirituality is going to be stunted and we're only going to produce Mary's. You know, there's the book, I, I haven't read it. I, I, I hear there's a book, Being Mary in a Martha World. I actually think for Pentecostals and Charismatics and Spirit-filled people, we're much more at risk of, be, of, of being Mary in a Martha world in a way that's destructive. We need to learn to be Martha in a Mary world. Some of us need to get up off of our place of prayer and bear the presence into our relationships with our family, with our friends, with our coworkers, at school, wherever we happen to be. We need to bear that presence to be the face and the voice and the body of Christ to the world. We can't fixate in that moment. And so I end by drawing you back to the story of Thomas. You can stand with me if you will. We started with the stories of Mary and Thomas. And both of them, both Mary and Thomas, have a desire for presence. They want Jesus to be present to them. But notice, they want Jesus to be present to them in the way they had already experienced him. Mary is weeping because she remembers Jesus. She falls at his feet and clings to him because she doesn't want him to go away. But what he says to Mary is, don't hold on to me. I must go away. Because if I go away, then the comforter can come. And if the comforter comes, then the Father and I can make our home in you. And what he's saying to Mary is, you want me to be present this way. But if you'll let me be absent... I'll be present to you in a way you don't know to desire because it hasn't entered into the heart of man to even ask for this kind of presence. It's much more than you can ask or think or even imagine. And he says the same to Thomas. Thomas, you want me to be present to you this way. You want me to be present in a way that you can touch my wounds. You can hear my voice. You can see my face and recognize me as the one that you knew before. But I don't want to be present to you this way because I want to be present to you in a way that gives you life so that my character can become your character, so that you come to share in my relationship with the Father through the Spirit. And what I hear and what I submit to you for discernment is this. The Lord is saying to all of us, you keep asking for this kind of presence. You keep wanting to touch me in this way. But if you'll learn to practice my absence, I'll give you a presence that you don't know to ask for. And you might not even feel it the way you can feel this presence. It might not thrill you in the same ways as this presence, but it will change you. It'll make you right. It'll turn your heart so that you desire what you should desire. And this, I believe, is the secret of this meal and the reason he's given us this meal this way. Because he's saying to us, oh, I'm present to you. This is my body. This is my blood. To share in this cup is to share in the body and blood of Christ, Paul says. You eat this bread, you eat, drink from this cup, and you eat the life of Christ. It's not a presence that's going to thrill you in the same way that this presence does. But you become like him. As St. Augustine said, he comes to the communion table and he hears the Lord say to him, you eat this meal, you take this bread into you, you take this wine into you, but the bread and the wine are not converted into you. 
because this is my body and blood, you eat this bread and you drink this wine and you're converted into me. You eat this and it makes you my body. You drink this blood and it makes you ready to pour your life out as a sacrifice. So as we come into this moment now, Pastor Ed's going to come, as we come into this moment to share in this communion, I want all of us as a community, as a family, to say, Lord, we want you to be present the way you need to be present. Not the way we demand it, not the way we've expected it, but the way we need it to become a people who are faithful to you. Amen? Pastor Ed, you can come.